Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Detraction Pieces Podcast, episode 407. I hope you are all well. Today's guest has been requested many, many times, so I was delighted to finally get put together with uh, with Loki, rapper and political activist um, and, and kind of educator online. He is for me anyway. I mentioned at the end of this, I was kind of, I'd been asked to have Loki on for a while and I was, I was a little bit intimidated because he knows loads more than me. I know that sounds stupid, but because we didn't know each other much, I felt I wanted to do a lot of prep before chatting with the dude. Had similar a few years back with Akala, a lot of people's favourite episode of the Distraction Pieces podcast. Similar with Sir Williams, a few different journalists, Soad McHennett, um, numerous people. So yeah, I wanted to make sure I was prepped and ready for this one. So I did a lot of prep. But I need you guys to know that I hadn't told Loki what we were going to talk about at all. And that might seem a pointless thing to mention in the intro, but it really illustrates the dude's broad and deep knowledge of so many things going on in the world at the moment. Because I would bring subjects up and he would be able to quote, you're here. It's it's a dense podcast, but it's an amazing one. I've been hyping it for a few weeks now. I really enjoyed it. I think the dude is hugely important. Um, and I think it's important. I discussed this with Kano and with Dr. Adam, Adam Elliot Cooper. And with Getz even, with a few people, I spoke about credible role models and credible examples and Loki is that you're here his story and his, his life has made him incredibly credible um I don't know I, I don't think we actually got into him being stabbed as a as a teen but we do talk about his kind of early interest in political activism and then where all that has led on to and instead the reason I think he's important is there's a lot of political activism online now I think that's great it's a wonderful thing but a lot of it isn't a lot of us can't back up our shit (laughs) you know a lot of us will go I know this is what I believe but I don't really know why I don't know the ins and outs and Loki does know the ins and outs he ain't, ain't messing about with this shit anyway I'm rambling on already and you've got a lot to listen to and I'm really excited for you to hear it so I'm going to stop talking yeah we're Brought to you as ever by Speech Development, records.com, but fuck that this week, and Patreon, fuck all of that, just listen to what this conversation throws up, yeah, and enjoy, and f- f- follow Loki if you're not already following the dude, he knows he knows his shit, and he's a good, he's a good guy, so yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation, I need down the line to have more conversations with Loki, I need to jump back on with Akala, there's a few different people I need to to sit down and talk to i need to give killer mike another shout i'm mentioning these as well because if this is your first time tuning in you might want to go and check out those previous episodes i also recommend the chat recently with kalechi okafor was one of my favorites another wonderful young human who 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 knows her shit and is willing to express it passionately and unfiltered so yeah this is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 407, with Loki. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. 
Right, I'm here today with Loki. Um, you've been requested a lot, so it's great to finally be sitting down and chatting. And I want to talk to you about your life. I want to talk to you about your career in music. I want to talk to you about your activism. I want to talk about your new interview series, Truth in Power, which is produced by the arts organisation Apolitical, who are amazing. But first things first, just how are you, man? How how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. Obviously, it has been a challenging time for all of us, especially in the arts. We've had to diversify a lot of us, the ways in which we make a living. I'm hopeful that we seem to be coming out uh, the other side of this. Obviously, the economic ramifications of what happened are going to play out across the world and obviously won't be equally distributed. We will see some suffer more than others overall. Yeah. You know, we know that remittances, for example, um, the amount of money that people send home uh, to countries they're originally from have gone down massively. And when you think about country like South Sudan, a country like Haiti, other countries that are massively reliant on remittances for a huge percentage of their GDP, they will suffer a lot because of this. So... Yeah, we we have challenges ahead of us as well. A, a, a remittances and and sending home. Yeah. Just to get straight into it, it's something that's so massively overlooked when people discuss um, immigration and and refugees. Obviously, we're talking as as we speak. We're within a week of troops being pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, now this won't be out for a month. So to be frank. Between now and then, there's going to be endless tragedies. So yeah, it's a tough one to sure. kind of get too heavily into because it's a, sure. a fucking mess. But one the thing that, that is coming up a lot is people saying it looks like it's it's mainly m- m- men. And this comes up a lot with immigration in general. So not even talking yeah. about the particular horrific situations in Afghanistan. Yeah. Talk about, oh, it's men, it's y- young men, they're older than they look, it's older men. But people don't understand that often th- that's what's needed for one person to, to tr- travel, to start to plant yeah. roots in a country and to work their fucking asses off. The immigrant mentality is nothing to be overlooked. It's not this turn up, collect some benefits yeah. and survive. It's no, you're so many of these individuals are coming over, as you say, to send money home so their families can survive until that, they can bring them over too, right? Absolutely. I mean, and even if you look at a country like the UK, it's only 0.18% of the population yeah. who are refugees. And if they do have access to public funds, which a lot of them don't have recourse to public funds, they get about £37.50 per week. Now, if you think about that, even if the entire 0.18% of this population were getting £37.50 a week, it's still taking less from the public pot than somebody like Rupert Murdoch, who for 11 years paid almost zero corporate tax and keeps a lot of his earnings today in a very complicated web of tax havens. You know, we can't forget that Britain has a network of tax havens that account for 37% of all tax losses that governments face uh, around the world. But also, I mean, the other side of it is Britain occupied 14 million miles of the globe in our grandparents' lifetime. Still yeah. to today, it, al- it has almost 150 military bases around the world. If you look at a country like Afghanistan, where the Durand line 
was drawn by the British separating a community who now in Pakistan and now in Afghanistan, in many ways, viewed themselves as one part of a contiguous community. That Durand line split up that community, which was the Pashtun community, and the Taliban largely come from the Pashtun community on that point where Afghanistan meets Pakistan. You know, Pakistan had the queen as its head of state for the first five years, at least, of yeah. its um, existence. But Afghanistan has been uh, invaded and occupied by the British four times over the last two centuries. The first time bombs were ever used in Afghanistan, it was the British shooting Afghans from cannons um, and also using bombs uh, to attack them in 1919, dropping over 300 in one day. Wow. Can we really say that it's fair for an Afghan who in many ways knows Britain far better than British people know Afghans to have no right to come here you know, after the um, British Nationality Act in 1947, it was said that anybody from any part of the British Empire was a British citizen. That wasn't rolled back until 1962 with the uh, Commonwealth Act, which took away that right. So at that point, anyone within the British Empire could immigrate freely to Britain. And they weren't migrants, they were people yeah. uh, practising their their birthright. I mean, the other thing, the other part of it also is, is when we look at the situation now where there's a big, not uproar, but there's a lot of talk about 20,000 people being allowed to come from Afghanistan. We remember the previous promise that was made around Syria. Uh, Britain, in the end, gave less than 10% of the people they promised they would give a settlement. Um, coming out of Syria, but also across the last three to four decades, 35,000 people have died trying to get into the EU. And a lot of them were Afghans. And, you know, the war itself displaced 5.3 million Afghans too. So it's important that people have an awareness of that history, I would say. Do you think there's an irresponsibility going on in the media at the moment of on radio and in, in podcasts, so not even only the, the mainstream media, of people discussing these su subjects without an appropriate amount of r research or information. The thing that an annoys me a lot is every time I see immigration debated, there's always the argument of why they they come into England. Why don't they stop in other countries that are also safe? It's because England is a soft, a, a, a soft sell or, or, or a soft touch or whatever. England takes in the least immigrants of all of Europe. And again, to be clear, we are still in Europe. It was the European Union that we let. Another thing that people seem to argue, you can't leave, you can't up anchors and move England out of Europe. Absolutely. That's just geography. But yeah, it seems to be, there's so many arguments that are constantly used that are so easy to dispel. And again, mm. the simplicity is, it's something like we take an average of, again, I'm saying that and now I can't, a, a quote the numbers even though I was reading it yesterday but we take l less than half per capita of of refugees than anywhere else in Europe so they are stopping in numerous other safe places along the way but we're a country that claims to be great and we shout about how w wonderful we are all the time and how we're one of the superpowers all this kind of thing. yet when it comes to helping people we go oh no we're only small oh no mm. we're not that good it's like mm. if, if we were as good as we claim then we should be going well, we want to take more than anyone else in Europe. We yeah. want to prove how powerful a country we are. Absolutely. I mean, 80% of the world's refugees are in 
quote unquote third world countries, when you look at countries that neighbour the countries that have been subject to NATO or British and US invasion, the vast majority of refugees from Afghanistan go to Pakistan and Iran. The vast majority of refugees from Iraq go to places like Turkey, Jordan, and you know maybe some in the Gulf. But generally, it's about having those countries around them absorb all of that pain, really, in many ways, and that displacement. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, there seems to be, and I don't blame, by the way, just to speak to the um, the first part of your question, I definitely don't blame you know, individuals for stuff like this. There was something called Operation Legacy, which was a British government policy, which is amazingly covered by a writer called Ian Cobain in his book, The History Thieves, where he looked at this policy, which existed through many different branches of British government at the point where independence was being claimed by countries they occupied, in fact, 37 different countries he identifies, whereby the British government gave orders to either burn, hide or sink documents that could embarrass or be, and this is the words that was used, that could be used to embarrass Her Majesty's government or for later immoral practices. And what they mean by that is using these documents which the British government had amassed and documented the occupations of these places mm. through, they could be used later to bring legal action against wow. uh, the British government. And the case that revealed it actually was a case whereby people still alive today who had been kept in British camps in Kenya, um, you'd had examples of people being burnt alive, you'd had examples of people being castrated, brought the case against the British government recently and won a payout of, I think, about £20 million. But overall, wow. it ended up being about £2,000 per person you know, because wow. many of them are still alive today. But this was post-Second World War in the 60s, um, what we're talking about. And so that case, because when the British were asked to produce documentation, the documentation that they, that they put forth to the court was referencing other documents that didn't seem to be available, it started to un unravel and reveal this policy uh, whereby in Hanslope Park in Britain there were uh, tens of thousands of documents hidden. And of course, you know, there's a lot that we don't know really about that mm. period of time. It was said, though, that at the point of partition in India and at the point of the establishment of Israel and Palestine, you did see uh, the burning of documents. There were big plumes of smoke going up from the British embassy. You know, and it, again, with the US exit from Afghanistan, it does seem to be something that imperial governments do um, in order to protect themselves from later risks. So what I would say is that Operation Legacy was essentially rolled out across British society, meaning that we are sitting in schools and we are learning about 1066, we are learning about Second World War, we're learning about Truman and his turmoil about using nuclear weapons, in Japan, but we're not learning about very basic aspects of British history, mm. you know, because the truth is, is that an interesting way to understand the English language is that you can see the fingerprints of other languages within it. So, for example, the word jungle, this came from uh, the British presence in India, words like duff, to duff someone up, this came from 
the British presence in Palestine. Word like algorithm, for example, comes from Al-Khawarizmi. This was a polymath who lived in Baghdad a thousand years ago and actually has a crater on the moon named after him. Wow. So there's many, you know, arsenal from Dar al-Sana'a, you know, from the Arabic word, even the word philosophy, Obviously, it comes from Greek originally, philosophia, love of wisdom, but then it passed into Arabic and became falsafa, and then it came into Latin and then came into English. So for me, I think etymology would be quite an potentially inoffensive way also to excavate the power dynamics of the past through which we can understand how the country we live in now has always been a hybrid Mongol nation, and, you know, whether we're talking about the Huguenots, whether we're talking about the Romans founding London in 46 AD, calling it Londinium, whether we're talking about the Celts who lived here before that, whether we are talking about the Normans that came in 1066, you know, people have moved around the world all the time. You know, the Phoenicians were mining for tin here a few thousand years ago in Cornwall. People have moved around the world and people have interacted. But I think for some reason... There is a benefit for those that hold power in society and hope to monopolize that power in promoting the idea of an absolute authentic core of which the people that they hope to mobilize and they speak to belong to and another group of people are not. But yeah. like I said, if you look at, you know, it's that vertical solidarity and horizontal hatred, that is what is being pushed really. And unfortunately it can have disastrous effects. But when you actually look at the mere amount of money, the sheer amount of money that's been pushed into making people in, and, and I include in that, whether it's the think tanks that produce these irrationalized versions of people, these caricatures of people, or it's uh, newspapers like The Sun that push these very limiting views of other people, the amount of money invested into it, you haven't seen pogroms you know, you have seen bombs placed outside mosques, you have seen stuff like that, but you haven't seen the level of violence that, you know, Tommy Robinson uh, describing Muslims as enemy combatants, uh, Nigel yeah. Farage talking about people as invaders. You haven't seen people getting lynched and pogroms happening in the streets. And I think that actually is a testament to the extent to which people do not actually agree with that stuff. Yeah. Because when they look at the convivial life that they have, they think, well, if you tell me these people are, are dangerous to me, you know, when I go to the shop, you know, and I get what I need and I get my shopping, who's behind the counter? I, you know, what is the truth about human history is that it's defined by cooperation more than anything else. Even no matter how unjust the status quo is, people cooperate. And I think it's that cooperation that discredits the, some of the ideas that they're trying to push. It's, it's fascinating to hear so many little bits of history that I was unaware of. Do you feel people talk a lot about how um, it's it's like an ongoing joke of I learned about Pythagoras theorem at school, <laughs> but, but no one taught me about mortgages and, and stuff like mm. that. I, I kind of don't quite agree on that front because I think school should be about learning more than the practical. And mm. one of those things as you've touched on there is accurate history whether that be through etymology of language and things like that. But another thing, I think things like economics, because people don't understand mm. that studies show that it's, it's why I support massively a, a universal basic income, because studies show that when people aren't in desperation, they 
earn and 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 work and 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 find ways to add to society i had a refugee called ramel on the podcast a, a long while back and part of her story was a year or two of homelessness as she was waiting asylum status and then when she got asylum status within a few years she had a degree in biochemistry and was a nurse and was doing all sorts of amazing stuff that added to our society and that was because she was now told oh you're allowed to rather than oh we're not sure yet and the the myth that comes around is that and again the easy example of history is is after wars of when immigration has literally rebuilt our country so there's been a switching narrative that immigration and asylum seeking is draining is here to drain us as a country rather than add to and build and continue to improve as it has done as you've listed there time and time again throughout history so Mm. do you think those kind of things need to be would be important to educate more and help us as a society i guess absolutely i think the key part of children sitting in a classroom and understanding why they're here would be massively helpful if they were to look at it and say, okay, well, this is a country that, you know, that the act of union between England and Scotland took place after England had already been in Jamaica for several years. If people had an understanding that Britain didn't have an empire, Britain was an empire, then I think there'd be a slightly different way in which they understand their colleagues and their cohorts in class also. But the problem is, is that we have these mechanisms of miseducation, like the sun, who, you know, are pushing poison on people. And, you know, when you look at, for instance, this yacht that they're building for Prince Philip, the company building it is Camel Lard, which is owned by the Peel Group. Now, that is controlled by John Whittaker and his family, who are there, all of their business dealings are based in the Isle of Man. So it's a tax haven. And it's not only owned by the Whitaker family, a small percentage is owned by a Saudi organization called the Alliant Group. So what we have is this, this big symbol of patriotism, which is going to be this yacht for Prince Philip, yeah. for someone who was born in Corfu, the Prince of Greece, okay, of, of, of German lineage. Yeah. And yet somehow this is what people here need to feel is of them. And when you yeah. look at the fact that the very company that's building it <laughs> is in a tax haven yeah. and also linked to the Saudis, then you say, well, so what's it all about now? So it seems that the kind of, you know, Arabs or Middle Easterners that you want us to have a problem with are the same people that are sitting next to us in the waiting room in a doctor's surgery or a hospital from services that have been cut by George Osborne and the rest of his adherents to the programme of austerity. Those are the kind of people you want us to have a problem with, the people that are sitting next to us. You don't want us to have a problem with people who don't pay their fair share and people who are linked to some really serious violence uh, around the world. It also makes me think about Douglas Murray and his book, The Strange Death of Europe. In it, what he seeks to do is put all of the effects of austerity, so you're talking about lack of access to education, lack of access to good health care, you're talking about shortage in the housing market. You know, there's 1.4 million people on a waiting list for social housing in this country at a time when only 1% of the country is even built upon for housing. There's more land 
used for golf courses than there is used for housing, not for all building, for housing specifically. But also 50% of the land in this country is owned by 1% of the country. How can you persuade us that these people coming in and getting £37.50 per week who have come from countries that Britain has bombed recently are our enemy when the imbalance of spatial access is the way it is? And so basically in Douglas Murray's terrible book, I don't recommend it at all. Uh, I don't think you should read it unless you absolutely have to or you're a bit sadomasochistic because it's not an enjoyable experience. But he he basically seeks to blame all of that on a very small amount of people, you know, relatively small amount of people. Out of a population of 67 million, you've got about um, 180,000 refugees. This is a tiny, negligible, an infinitesimal number, in fact, and, and they are somehow to blame for the damage of austerity. And it has been a policy of deflection. You know, that's the yeah. truth. It's been a, a deflection policy. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, I think, part of the reason the, the British working class public are so happy to just allow this stuff to roll on is us being built on an aspirational society on that could be we could be the next millionaire on 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 only fools and horses essentially and i know growing up working class i thought i had a long period thinking that taxes are a bad thing like you you want to avoid as much tax paying as possible a bit of cash and hand work here and there things like that and then it was only in later life that i was educated to realize how crucial taxes are and again how the burden of tax should be completely flipped on its head it shouldn't be more taxing of the the people with the least money it should be greater taxing of the people with the the most money who can afford it but i think because of that working class thing of a bit of cash in hand work a bit of this and that i think that's why people don't instantly get as up in arms about these tax haven companies these tax haven individuals that could solve so many of the problems of of this country, of the working classes, of all classes, um, and it's yeah. Uh, well, I think it's it's on one level it's right because the way that that th- those taxes are being spent, we actually you know we exist in a country where you have far more unelected members of the House of Lords than you have elected members of the House of Commons. You have. 26 representatives, I think it is, of the Church of England within that structure. You have a royal family that have been found to have vetted around a thousand different laws that have passed. You had 300 years in which people that don't own property had to struggle for the right to vote for parliamentary representation. It included people being massacred at the Peterloo massacre. It included um, people being exiled to penal colonies like William Cuffey, the leader of the Chartist movement. It was literally a 300, 400 year struggle. So what we have is a very limited form of representation with very carefully policed parameters of political possibility. Now, when people look at that system and say, well, I don't actually have that much choice around how the taxes are being spent. But then also you look at someone like Nadim Zahawi, the conservative um, minister. This is somebody who his uh, he was one of the founders of YouGov. And mm-hmm. it was through his company. He still owns uh 20 million uh, pounds of, of shares in, in YouGov, the uh, the polling company. 
through Bolshaw uh, Investments and Burkford Investments. Now, both of those organisations are in the tax haven of Gibraltar. So what we see essentially is one rule for us and one rule for them. You know, we, in terms of the vast majority of us, probably pay a higher percentage on our earnings back into this idea of collective responsibility, which is the taxation system, than a lot of those in really important positions. And, yeah. you know, it's a whole art, the way in which they uh, they juggle that and move that around and escape what is collective social responsibility. Yeah. I mean, we we touched upon school in there and I kind of want to ask what kind of, 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 ki- of kid you were because <laughs> from reading up, it feels like you maybe got a lot of your education and politicisation at home. Mm. Like your dad was one of the founders of, of Rock Against Racism, which a lot of people seem to forget was came off the back of Eric Clapton t- talking some dumb racist shit, um, mm. which weirdly, again, he's been kind of in the media again recently speaking out against v- vaccination passports and whatnot. So w- what was your upbringing? What kind of kid were you? Where were you? So what I would say is um, I grew up with the perception that my dad was one of the founders, but in fact, he wasn't. <laughs> oh, really? He was He was one of the members and he was really, you know, seriously involved yeah. and an important part of it. But no, he wasn't one of the, I think it was three, um, that originally wrote the letter to the enemy um, yeah, yeah. about uh, Eric Clapton and David Bowie um, as well. So I think on one side of it, definitely, you know, him being in the SWP, him having a Marxist analysis of capitalism, um, my mum also coming from a political situation in in Iraq and, you know, being Arab in the 80s and going through the kind of things that people went through in terms of on the street comments and things that people would say to them. You know, this was post, you know, the Iranian revolution. So there was some of that kind of stuff going around. It was uh, post the oil crisis in 73, where the Gulf countries refused to sell their oil to countries that were working with Israel. And so that actually then led on to an economic crisis in Britain. So there was quite an extent to which Arabs were perceived in a negative way. But obviously, it wasn't quite in the same way that it became post 9-11, which then happened when I was 15. So really, at that time, I think I had, to some extent, a superficial political education at home. We had Mark Thomas on the TV. We had Franz Fanon on the bookshelf. We had, you know, uh, some memorabilia from Cuba kind of around the house, kind of that kind of stuff. But, you know, by that time, Thatcherism had had simultaneously demobilised and, and bought off people. And worn away, at, you know, through the infiltration that we saw of the unions, through the crushing of the miners. You know, my, my grandfather on my dad's side was a, a coal miner right. in Dover. So really, at that time, I don't think I ha- it, it definitely wasn't a comprehensive political education. And I'm still sort of in the process of, of, of that political education. But I think I was given some, at very least, given an, ins- an instinctive disdain for the elite. From yeah. my dad, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but then obviously the thing was that the things that happened then forced, you know, especially me and, and, and you know, my siblings into a position where 
you start to understand that the, the, the state that you're a part of is involved in very extreme violence against people that you feel some sort of affinity to. Yeah. And that's, and that's quite, you know, for many in, in British society, that seems like quite a sort of outlandish concept to think that there's a group of people that you have an affinity to and the very state that you're a part of, the state that you've grown up in, the state that has educated you, you know, in many ways the BBC was a, a sort of stalwart of my upbringing. You know, one of the things that was an early site of education for me and then moved into music was the radio because when I was young, I used to listen to the football on the radio from age of eight. And then I'd leave it on and fall asleep and I'd wake up and it would be playing Radio 5 Live because it was Radio 5 Live that I listened to football on. So I'd start to know these names like Jack Chirac and all of this stuff. And, and people found it quite strange that this eight-year-old knew these names and stuff like that. But then it then turned into hip-hop. So, you know, I was listening to Westwood when he was on... Uh, Capital the first time before he went to Radio One and became the Tim Westwood yeah. when he was a bit more of a normal normal person when he was <laughs> before he bought into his own character. Um, well, but yeah, before he became inspired by Funk Master Flex and, yeah. and tried to sort of emulate that. Um, and then obviously Friday Night Flavors, Two Seven Nine, Choice FM. You know, Choice FM came out of the uh, the London riots. It was a concession by the British government to say that one of the ways in which they would sort of hope to sort of pacify the black community in London would be by having a radio station which specifically catered to the black community. You'd have a quota of gospel, quota of soca, quota of raga, quota of reggae, quota of hip hop, quota of R and B. You know, I you, I just lived and breathed Choice FM, really, uh, for those years. And, you know, so that was really a kind of an interesting way in which some of the stuff that had come from, you know, my, my, my parents' own experiences in the world, and then they kind of, I sort of started to come of age and, and kind of meet with and converge with some of the ideas that they'd had more in their younger years. But then uh, specifically in terms of what, you know, radicalised me, and I don't mean it in any sense of the word apart from politically, what radicalised me would, would, you know, would have been the war on terror. And it would have been this sort of new relationship that formed with the state. You know, it became an understanding that I was in conflict or contradiction with what the government was doing. And yeah. So then that criticality just becomes sharper and sharper over the years. And then, of course, Grenfell, you know, you've got to understand that uh, the community that I'm part of was criminalised in about three or four different waves prior to Grenfell. But then Grenfell also then lent itself to a deeper surveillance from the state of the entire community. So first you've got the um, demonstrations outside the Israeli embassy, which is in the same borough. Um, as Labrick Grove, as Latimer yeah. Road. And so people I knew were getting beaten up by the police and then imprisoned for extremely harsh sentences for skirmishes outside the Israeli embassy, embassy at a time when they were bombing Gaza. So that sharpened me and made me more 
sort of political, more confrontational because of the extremity of the violence that was happening in Gaza and the familial relationships we have with Palestinians, the historical relationship my family have with Palestine, with Palestinians. I felt an affinity to those people. And then, you know, my peers who were being arrested and put, you know, some of them were uni students who had their had the trajectory of their life altered forever by going to prison. So I also felt an affinity, a great affinity affinity to those people. Then you had the riots, which uh, again led to more integration of surveillance type of logic within the youth services. And I um, was a youth worker in the area and I was offered a job actually in 2012. And part of the job was to work with a specific, quote-unquote, at-risk group of youth that they knew I knew who had been in prison during the riots and liaise with the Metropolitan Police every two weeks. Now, I wasn't willing to do that, but that is just indicative of the kind of commonsensical logic that surveillance was was really becoming yeah. in terms of the youth services. It's, it's, it's mad to me that, that what is clearly needed is an increased investment in youth services. And the only way that happened was by the police thinking, well, we need to put these fake youth services in as a <laughs> yeah. surveillance thing. It's like, that's the actual solution. The, the, <laughs> the thing that you're doing as the as the secret <laughs> we keep in an eye, that's the actual solution. Don't just remove the surveillance bit. And put, this is the problem. Put, put all the energy <laughs> that you're putting into that. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's madness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then... Unfortunately, this story doesn't get anywhere near the right direction. It just gets worse and worse, obviously. Then was the Syria situation. Now, it's well documented by conservative writers like Peter Oborn and others that MI5 and MI6 had differing policies when it came to the Arab Spring. MI5 were trying to avoid uh, domestic trouble, obviously. MI6, however, were involved. There's a lot of evidence on it in the passage of young people from this country into the theatres of war, which was Syria and Libya, right? Mm. So what happened was, you know, and even Shamima Begum, the thing that is never mentioned about Shamima Begum is that when her and her friends, who were 15-year-old children at that time, first went to Syria, it was reported that the person that picked them up and helped them across the border from Turkey to Syria was a spy of US coalition forces. That's not me saying that. That's Reuters saying that. That's Reuters saying that. Now, why is it that Shamima Begum is supposedly more accountable than an intelligence service from a NATO nation? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and as I say, it's documented, it's been argued by others. My belief is that this community was one of those communities that, through a confluence of things, through a feeling that they were outside of acceptable political expression, feeling that they were not allowed to really have their ideas absorbed by the political system here. You know, and one of them that went off to Syria was a a young guy that was imprisoned during the demonstrations outside the Israeli embassy. Um, But also that it involved MI6 and other intelligence services in the Middle East. So this community then was tarred with that brush to a certain extent. You know, they, what did they call them? The Westway Warriors was a few articles that were printed on it. Um, You know, as if there was something 
um, exceptional to this area that it produced these young, mainly North African, disgruntled Arab Muslim men who went off to fight in a theatre of war. When, you know, the fact is, is that the British army is recruiting in schools all the time and uh, trying to lead kids towards, you know, fighting in the Middle East all the time. It's just there's a slightly different way in which these uh, young men were groomed, were misled and and went off there and, and threw their lives away, basically. And so then what that then led to was further surveillance. And again, while this whole thing is happening, I'm not entirely aware of every single step of it and and the intricacies of the way the state does this. So it's able to use this group of young people as mercenaries to some extent, as a battering ram, but then also it further entrenches surveillance logic within the communities that they come from. And then obviously the, the fire at Grenfell, which was literally is opposite uh, the flat I live in. And, you know, a young man who I'd known from the age of 14 died in there with his entire family from his little brother mm. who was four to his his mum. You know, and we saw one family at the window for, you know, an hour or so. Three generations of the same family died in that fire. So when you think about all of those things coming together as a perfect storm, you can understand why I became the kind of person that I am. Um, yeah essentially. And so I think that, you know, all of us are products of our time and our context. But yeah, those things definitely left their fingerprints on me in I, a major way. I want to come back to that, the the that change, I guess. But something you touched upon a lot there is something that plays on my mind a lot, a lot as well is the demonization of terrorists, which sounds like a really odd thing to say, but I think it, it it removes all all nuance. I had um, a chat on here with Suad McKennett, uh, a j- j- journalist who who un- uncovered the identity of of Jihadi John and spent a lot of time interviewing extremists, and she got a lot of stick for it because it was seen as why you go in and sympathising with the enemy. But her belief was that we need to understand. We do better by understanding the term by demonising or oversimplifying. One of the big things that people got mad at Jeremy Corbyn about, which was one of the things that made him appeal to me, I wasn't completely on board with Corbyn, but one of the things that made him appeal to me was his history of meeting with the IRA and people associated with the IRA. Because again, I don't support any of the actions of the bombings or anything of the IRA, but I think the situation that they were in the more I've learnt about it, from when I was a kid hearing about it, of these evil devils, to finding out what actually happened, how they were radical, why they why they had to rise up and defend themselves, I've got a far greater understanding and, and, and empathy there. And I think one of our problems in society is we it, it needs to be a black and white. It's like, oh, here's the new bad guys. These are the latest bad guys, rather than understanding. And that can even be, to an ex- extent, as as you were saying there, of the greater understanding we have, potentially the less radicalisation there will be because we'll understand why these young people are being radicalised and what is is tipping them over the edge. So, yeah, what do you kind of think we can do there as such to, 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 to recalibrate that? Well, I think firstly we need to understand the nature of what it is that we're talking about on its worst year 
Um, terrorism is believed to have caused the deaths of 25,000 people across the world. Um, according to Baroness Varsi, you know, former head of the Conservative Party, only 0.5% of those attacks take place in Western countries. Mm. And the vast majority of attacks that do take place in Western countries are carried out by right-wing terrorists. In fact, you have the period between 2006 and 2014, according to um, Europol, 0.7% of terrorist attacks in all EU countries were carried out by Muslims. However, during that same period, prevent funding, according to Damien Breen in his great book, Muslim Schools, Communities and the Big Bogeyman, now Critical Race Theory, he found that prevent funding was being given during the very same period um, to different boroughs, proportionate allocations to the Muslim communities that were there. And in fact, Major Chris Hunter an expert in terrorism for the British government, said that you have one in 16 million chance in this country of being anywhere near an act of political violence. If you also look at the uh, thinkers like Mark Sageman, CIA analyst on it, he found in his book, um, Misunderstanding Terrorism, that actually for Every person that they have found across the war and terror time to have had anything to do with political violence, they have had to unjustly detain a quarter of a million people. Now, this is wow. incredible figures, but yeah. they're coming from Mark Sageman, not me. He also found that less than one in every Muslims has had anything to do with terrorism. According to Professor Frank Harvey from the United States, you are four times more likely to be struck by lightning than to die in a terrorist attack. And also, if you compare it to the amount of people that die every year, so we're talking about 25,000 people in its worst year, right? And the vast majority of the people that died from it were in Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, Nigeria. Seven million people are believed to die every year because of pollution. 1.25 million people are believed to die every year because of car crashes. I mean, on the pollution issue, what is the world's biggest cause of carbon emissions, it is the US military, which has more funding than the next seven militaries put together and has around a thousand military bases around the world. And it's estimated that they have 105 military bases in the UK alone. Now, when we think about this next point, what clearly this is about is threat inflation, because along the line, there are people that derive benefit from this industry, you know, and it's Actually, the, the, the size of this industry is massive in terms of people that literally personally benefit from the propagation of the idea that this is a far bigger problem than it actually is and that it actually affects people that it affects the least far more than it does. Yeah. And so I think that unfortunately, when you look at some of the policies that were rolled out, like Prevent, you know, which clearly violates the 2010 Equality Act, which stipulates that one should not be discriminated against on the basis of their religion or their political view. And what Prevent actually explicitly is asking people to do is discriminate against people yeah. because of their yeah. political view and or their religion. And so what is then the... And, you know, Prevent and sort of counter-terror legislation is invisible through its ubiquity because now not only is it a legal statutory duty for all public sector 
institutions, but also many private institutions like Tesco's, like McDonald's are also part of Prevent, unfortunately, internally. And so what that basically establishes is a hierarchy of political subjectivity, which says that we have some people that can have political views and we have some people who can't have political views. If they, you know, don't forget that Prevent actually opens up the space for three-year-old children to be questioned by police without the presence or knowledge of their parents. Now, when some looked at the Shamima Begum story, some looked at the Shamima Begum story, these girls were interviewed by the police under the prevent duty. Now, their parents weren't aware of it. Had their parents been aware of it, then their parents might have stopped them from going and ruining their own lives. Yeah. Yeah, and being trafficked, essentially. You know, what happened to Shamima Begum is she was trafficked by the intelligence services. Yeah. That's not me saying that. That's Reuters saying that. It has received zero um, serious interrogation on a societal level of what happened here. But that's what we're talking about. And so, actually, if Prevent was reliant on, you know, not that I have an interest in improving Prevent, it should be completely abolished, but if you did have within it the space whereby you couldn't question children, police yeah. could not question children without the knowledge of their parents, then Shamima Begum might not have gone. So yeah. what it's about is a, it's about threat inflation. It's about um, obfuscation of the effects of war. It's about obfuscation of what we're doing when it comes to asymmetrical warfare. None of these organisations that they've ever gone to fight have an air force. Look at the power of the US Air Force. Mm. Look at the power of the British Air Force. 90% of the drone attacks, and, and Daniel Hale revealed this and has now been imprisoned because of it, because these were internal documents to the US government, 90% of the victims are innocent bystanders and civilians. Mm. So, you know, this war in Afghanistan has killed a quarter of a million people. Yeah. You know, and, and the war on terror overall has entailed something like an average of 46 bombs being dropped per day. Are those invisible bombs? Are those westward bombs? You know, yeah. what are those bombs? You know, and what havoc do they wreak on people's lives is the question here. Yeah, it's it's mind-blowing. The, the uh, uh, One th- thing I wanted to go back to, I'm aware that we've got a, a limited amount of time and there's a million things to go off on on every, yeah. on every tangent. But one of the things that you mentioned, those kind of key moments that, that, that really politicised you, how have you found that in in balance with your music career because <laughs> i remember reading places like a, po- a political rapper loki and i'm thinking i don't remember his raps being particularly a, a political when i went through a similar thing i had one or two political songs that got used mm. in marches and stuff and i'd speak out i'd go door to door with billy bragg in dagenham to, to get rid of the bmp and all sorts of yeah, yeah. things like that and i was seen as a political rapper and i was like well no my right. stuff there's a lot of social commentary. There's a lot of bullshit in there as well. But there's, you know, there's 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 a variation of stuff. So, how have you f- found that as a as a, a rapper, the blurring of of those l- lines? I mean, I know you took one of my favourite things. I love seeing artists talk about this when you took four years off to essentially educate yourself more and to and 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 to live life and come back, you know, as an improved human as such. But yeah, how do you find that the balance between Loki, the the political r- r- rapper, and there's no commas in there or no no pauses. <laughs> well, I mean, I got um, <laughs> a qualification as an English teacher during that time. Yeah. Um, I got a qualification as a personal trainer. Um, I 
worked in Calais um, as a translator during that time as well. Um, and I got a master's uh, too. But the um, the thing with the kind of the trajectory has been, I've got more and more, you know, passionate, more and more animated. And obviously these issues have got closer and closer to home actually as my life has progressed. So I've gone from, I think, being someone who was rapping in school with my friends and then one of them had a brother that went to the open mic at Deal Real. So he suggested we go and, you know, me you know, wanting to stand out, going there, rapping as, you know, Loki, and then the original Loki comes, you know, the original Loki to that open mic, and then me battling him for the name, you know, and very much being sort of someone that was playing around with imagination at that time, wanted to spit, loved the lyricism of it, to then, unfortunately, you know, the way that things happen is you become sort of politicized by the identity that's that's also attached to you in the society too but it just pushed me more and more in the direction of being a sort of campaigner that raps rather than a rapper that campaigns um and that's sort of the way that it's gone also you know you know i do understand it's it's isolating it can be alienating it can be you know people don't always want to hear that stuff and uh, you know they obviously view it as kind of sometimes unnecessarily intense um sometimes it's just more intensity than they want you know it's it's not easy listening i'm aware of that but yeah it can kind of push you away from the music industry but then you also do find an audience that are interested in hearing what you have to say and they're also trying to work out a way to change society and and you know you look at this country in terms of the disparity between the richest and the poorest um, the point when it was at its smallest was the early 70s, so pre the oil crisis and the economic damage that kind of came from that. You had the top 1% making 6% of national income and 4% after taxes. That is the smallest the disparity has ever been. In terms of where we are today, we're at a point where the top 1% take about 17 to uh, 20% of the national income. And obviously not in terms of quality of life, but in terms of inequality and disparity of, of, of wealth, that is pre-World War I levels. Wow. Because obviously World War I and World War II particularly required um, public expenditure and, 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 you know, the social mechanisms through which people's lives got a little bit better but it's those very mechanisms that are being worn away and you know what are key understandings as human rights in british society like education healthcare and housing these are supposedly things that britain believes are human rights but they're being turned more and more in the neoliberal era into privileges and um you know there's many examples of of of, of stuff like that but yeah, um, my point is, is that it connects with people who are also currently involved in sort of campaigns to improve society and to really change things for the better in a way, even in a situation where the parameters of what is politically possible are so narrow. Yeah, you mentioned it getting um, overwhelming and intense at times. How do you, you balance that for you? Because one of the first times I became aware of you was I've always done a lot with mental health ch- charities. At, at 21, I, I, 
I lost one of my best mates to suicide. Um, so I know you've that. had that with your 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 brother at a, a young age as well. So I remember yeah. seeing you doing work with mind and stuff like that. Right. With, with, with that kind of in mind, what do you do to make sure you're all right in these times? Because I, I, you know, there's some shit going on in the world. I'm like, I need to go and get educated by Loki on this. I need to go on Instagram <laughs> or on Twitter and find out what, what direction I should be going in. But how's that for, for, for you to have all of yeah. that to because again it's not like it's oh the israel palestine stuff happened it was quiet before then it'll be it, it'll be over soon it'll be quiet after it's a constant thing there's so yeah. many things going on in the world that it's not this oh, oh we have a breather now how do you look after yourself and and how are you in that respect well i have to be honest with you um i was able to reach quite a good breakthrough by talking to actually someone that I work with on this apolitical series, big up apolitical, um, yeah. the truth to power series is out there now on uh, YouTube, but talking to a friend who I work with on that, he basically brought to my attention something called serotonin and how important it is in the regulation of panic and anxiety in your brain produces serotonin. Now, what I found was that when people have had trauma as a child, it sometimes impedes their brain's ability to produce serotonin, therefore in later life, making it harder to regulate fear, panic and anxiety. Now, having an awareness of that and using music to sort of calm me in those moments was useful to some extent. Using music to kind of explain that process was also useful to some extent. But particularly, you know, there's something called 5-HTP, which is a supplement that um, uh, towards the end of last year, I, um, you know, I took obviously physical activity. I'm someone that does Kung Fu a couple of times a week. Um, it obviously releases the endorphins and helps massively. One of the things that I think it would be great if young people could learn more is sort of de-escalation, keeping calm and how to cope with anxiety. I think it would be great if we had something in schools that was helping young people with that stuff. Because I think yeah. it's such an essential skill, not so much skill, but sort of muscle to develop because, you know, you can't, you can't develop that muscle in one day, but you have to, it's even like, you know, the thing with trauma is it forms certain synapses within your brain and leaves a physical fingerprint on you, which is then activated in later situations. And it can also even affect the empathic responders. It can, it basically informs the way we react to situations and can leave us really in a state of hypervigilance. And so, like I say, finding those ways, one of them was this 5-HTP, which helps with serotonin production. Um, you know, this stuff, it, it did really help me because we are talking about, you know, without, you know, saying sort of, woe is me, we are talking about consecutive, quite serious traumas. Mm. Um, and so in order to deal with them, you do have to be quite proactive uh, creative and sort of imaginative in the ways that you can uh, find to function successfully on a daily basis. It's, it's, it's great to hear someone talk about that because, again, I think one of the greatest m myths of of society is that we're just going to cope and mm. we're just going 
get by. It'll be fine. Society has changed at such an alarming rate with technology, with social media, with all sorts of different things. Of course, we're not built to just go, all right, cool, I'll handle Mm. this. And finding the right balance of things for you as an individual is is absolutely key. One of the things that you touched upon there, which I think would help a lot of people, was, was Kung Fu. And mm. you talked earlier about uh, wanting to change the world and wanting to change society. And that is a hugely overwhelming thought because it's, <laughs> it's massive. It's like, right, where do I start? Where do I begin? <laughs> One of the beautiful things about any martial art is that you learn quite quickly is that you can't learn quite quickly. <laughs> you know, it's got to be, yeah, true. you know, a thousand reps and so on and yeah, so absolutely. forth This over this period of time. And that's something I think that would be really helpful in the ever immediate society over that we're building, in the world where one click ordering had to be invented because mm. three or four clicks was too much to to <laughs> to go through to get the thing that we want. Mm. I think that's something that we could all learn from hugely as well, is that stuff takes time and stuff takes practice and it's small small developments rather than I want to be bruce lee and if by the end of the month i'm not bruce lee fuck it yeah kind of thing is that, that thing of right no i'm not but i've got better at that and i've improved here and Absolutely. i used to do a bit of, of brazilian jiu-jitsu and things like that was i nice. would be losing everything and then i'd get w- one transition or one moment and that'd be like oh shit man it's coming yeah it's coming i got that i, I had that I, improvement i think specifically jiu-jitsu is like that you have to be willing to be pretty bad and sort of rolling around in someone else's sweaty armpit for at least a year it's because it's it's one that you can't particularly drill on your own Mm. whereas most stand-up martial arts you can drill with a bag you can do with pads brazilian jiu-jitsu you have to do with someone else so you have to be losing to someone for a long period which is powerful yeah the humility that comes with it is uh yeah must be massive yeah it's an interesting one. So, how key is that in in your life? In 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 those lessons, I guess that it is a a constant battle rather than a um oh oh we should solve this by next year. Like, no, no, we're not going to solve it. There's no solving it. There's improving it and improving it and improving it. Yeah, I think also having a you know one of the good things about uni and about and about um kung fu is that it gives you a kind of new relationship obviously not everyone would have been like this but it gives you a new kind of relationship and humility humility in terms of your teachers sort of the example set by them um i think also just having that regular place to almost shed your skin because as you'll know when you're going there and training for two hours in tents you're sweating a huge amount and you're almost walking out kind of a new person. And so even if you go there with a lot of the concerns of the day and things getting you down, you go through the motions and you do the training, you come out of it feeling feeling fantastic, you know, feeling fantastic. I think I highly, 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 rec- you know, I wish I'd started younger, but I highly recommend it to to everyone. Absolutely. 100%. Well, I'm, I'm going to wrap things up as we're over an hour now. But there's t- two things I want to touch on. I want to end on a little bit more about this new series. But yeah, a, a thing that made me excited to 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 talk to you was 
the way you presented things on social media during the Israel-Palestine, the most recent escalation there, because you obviously speak from education, from knowledge and experience, like having been out there in 2009, being visiting the camps and getting arrested in the camps and all sorts of things like that. But the thing that really struck me was you didn't just go, look, here's my knowledge, here's what it is. You did like Instagram lives with people out there experiencing it with people rather than just here's a load of people in in England all talking about it and saying mm. what's going on. You spoke to people living it and that felt unfuckwivable. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> wow. it felt like wow. it's like, right, no, you can't question this. Like you can question any other commentator from the UK who's not out there experiencing it. But when you're sitting mm. there having these conversations direct it felt important man so like how was that and what kind of made you take that approach i guess well i'm i'm honored that you uh you noticed um you know and were sort of tuned in and saw that stuff that's great man um well i mean the thing is is people that have been affected by this situation you know this is the longest anti-colonial struggle um, in recorded human history, um, the struggle of the Palestinians for their rights, for their freedom, for self-determination, has, you know, the, the people that have been affected by it are all around us. You know, there will be people that have experienced that displacement close to us, definitely in London, but also in other parts of the UK. And I do think it is important to make these quite macro issues understood in material micro terms. And so it was great to, you know, speak to people and have them on the live and explain what, you know, the one that was particularly touching was with Ra'id um, from Gaza, who was, you know, he was on the live while bombs were dropping on his neighbourhood and, you know, Obviously, you see him going through the the terror of sort of realising what happened, what's happening. And these are really well-made and advanced pieces of technology that are doing this to a society and a community that has very, very limited means uh, through which to defend itself. And also, a lot of that weaponry is made here in Britain. And so that was often a, a... link that I was attempting to make um, to make people understand that the factories that are producing this kind of stuff by a company called Elbit Systems are in places like Birmingham and Leicester, you know, communities with high proportions of, of people whose origins are Pakistani, who would also disagree with the Indian occupation of Kashmir, that Elbit Systems also sells weapons to the Indian army that are then used in Kashmir. And that was a beautiful thing to see as well, because it was stuff that people could do. Seeing on Instagram people going and protesting these these factories to to be able to do something tangible, because that's the hardest, often the hardest thing in this digital politicization and activism here of what can you do that's actually going to make a difference that was great to see tangible shit they're like go here go here and protest and show them that you're not happy well they actually shut down a lot of these you know this organization palestine action has been relentlessly shutting down uh these arms factories and 
with them and in previous examples, whenever the cases have gone to court, which they rarely do, by the way, because the arms companies do not want scrutiny, mm. when it's argued that we did this to stop war crimes being committed, there isn't a jury that has uh, found anyone guilty of what they're being yeah. charged with. The cases always seem to get acquitted because, and also the companies have an aversion to being put on trial. And so what Palestine Action did, particularly during this latest campaign, was shut down a factory with the help of the local community in Leicester for six days. So in terms of costs to the company's operations, that is quite massive. And, you know, that's the way you do it. You interrupt the passage of power in the ways that you can. And, um, yeah, Palestine Action are definitely setting an amazing example. Um, in terms of the Truth to Power series yeah. with Apolitical... So this is on, on YouTube. This is right. on YouTube. And, and the lineup of guests you're getting, the variation, it's just, it's fascinating, man. It fascinates me. <laughs> Thanks, man. So we've, yeah, we've got Stella Morris, um, the wife of Julian Assange, um, who is currently in a cell at Belmarsh, despite the fact that the British government has deemed it would be dangerous for him to be extradited to the United States. He would have a high suicide risk. You know, Julian Assange has done more than anyone in our time to reveal what are the unknown unknowns of US foreign policy. You know, we can't forget that they took millions, I think 33 million classified actions in the first year of the war on terror alone mm. and spent 5.5 billion in keeping those documents secure. You know, stuff that WikiLeaks have done is basically showing us how our money is being spent, particularly US taxpayers around the world, in ways that we probably would disagree with if we had a choice. And, you know, for that, he is being punished and situations getting worse and worse. You know, his, his life is at risk at this stage. And Stella Morris um, spoke beautifully about that in the interview that we did. We also, on this apolitical series, have um, an interview with Marcia Rigg, who's the sister of Sean Rigg, who was killed by uh, the Metropolitan Police. And she has been fighting for justice for um, over a decade now and it's real that interview really reverberated through me because uh marcia has really been knocked from pillar to post you know in this uh in this struggle and i really really empathize with her uh her situation you know with this sort of unaccountability of of power within society because obviously we see that with the example of grimfell 72 people have died and uh, no one has been um, arrested for it, despite the fact that the inquiry has revealed really gross negligence on the part of many different actors. In terms of some of the other interviews, we interviewed Ahad Tamimi, who famous uh, Palestinian child prisoner, um, taken prisoner in the state of Israel. Um, you know, one of the great inspiring things that Ahad told me about was when the children that she was also imprisoned with turned their cells into a school. And when the, uh, the Israeli occupation authorities took away their books and their pens, they went on strike and refused to come out of their cells until they were returned to them. And now, you know, her experience has pushed her to want to become a lawyer and she's studying law at the wow. moment. So that was a great interview yeah, with amazing. her for sure. 
Um, in terms of other interviews, we also had Roger Waters, um, which was, you know, a real experience. Um, he's, he's a fascinating human being imagine. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, there was that. And uh, we also have done Naomi Klein, which was great talking about, you know, the fact that we are, despite, you know, the fact that NASA, that fossil fuel companies like Shell have had internal studies which have shown that the climate is being changed by the use of these fossil fuels. We have been, it's not even sleepwalking, we've been in a position where $5.5 trillion of subsidies globally are given by governments to fossil fuel companies on an annual basis. In the United States, the Environment uh, Protection Agency only gets 0.2% of the annual budget. Here, it's only 0.13% that the the organisation which is tasked with regulating uh, companies on environmental stuff um, gets funding too. So this massive imbalance of power towards uh, a very small, tiny slither of humanity who are able to manipulate regulations and use public funds to harm us, you know, what is this going to lead to in terms of um, the livability of human life and how important it is that we put steps in place to change it. But then also, you know, we spoke to her about the Green New Deal and the necessity of extraction. You know, 50% of carbon emissions come from extraction. And so I was able to sort of ask her about that. We can't forget that also Grenfell wouldn't have happened without the Kyoto Agreements. You know, the, the installation of insulation on people's homes was off the back of the government having the obligation from the Kyoto Agreements to lower carbon emissions. So I asked her kind of about that, how that fits into this idea of the Green New Deal that she is um, pushing hard at the moment. And yeah, we interviewed some really, really interesting people, man. And uh, I really appreciate you and big up Joe um, from Covered PR as well, helping, helping yeah, for helping put us together, man. And uh, I would love to keep in contact. And uh, yeah, like I say, man, I really appreciate you giving me the chance uh, to speak to you. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure and i said it's been a a long time coming you've been requested for a long time do you know what at points i think i've put it off because i felt under under qualified but because i'm watching so much of your stuff and learning from it so it's been great to sit down and have this conversation man and yeah absolutely not let's keep in touch and we'll and we'll 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 do some more shit yeah for sure well thank you very much for your time man it's been a pleasure thank you take care bro anything you need let me know man much love man You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Loki. I hope you enjoyed that. I've been hyping it up and I think you'll agree the hype was worthy. The hype was needed. The hype was warranted. Um, What a dude. As I said, if you enjoyed that, delve into the back catalogue. There's some great great chats. But get into into Loki's YouTube series and his interviews. Amazing stuff. The dude's a force. And I was honoured to have him on for a chat. Um, I'll be back next week, obviously. I've been back every week for something like seven years now. Of course I'll be back next week. So until then, stay safe and stay sane. 
Ta-ta. I've got this, I'm on a squeaky seat if you keep hearing that noise. I don't know if that was picking up initially, but I don't want you thinking I'm um, farting. <laughs>